in any kind of history class you ever went through, and this really isn't a church history <clears throat> per se, but it is taking one segment of church history, talking about the, just the history of interpretation. You can take any doctrine and then trace it historically through through the history of the church. All right, Eddie, are we ready? Okay. All right. The real father of the Protestant Reformation was Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King. <laughs> Junior or senior is Martin Luther. And the second most significant figure is John Calvin. Notice John Calvin <clears throat> is only eight years old when the Protestant Reformation began. So he is he's not a second generation reformer, but it he's he's young, he's in his early twenties when he uh <clears throat> becomes a believer and he's he's originally trained as a lawyer, as many of the reformers were, and as many significant pastors have been down through the uh down through the ages. But he uh, he also <clears throat> was very much against origin. He considered that origin uh, tortured the scripture with his allegory, that he was just, uh, the, the allegorical interpretation was just playing frivolous games uh, with the scripture, and that they tortured the scripture in every possible sense from the true sense. He also held, as Luther did, to the principle of the analogy of faith that scripture interprets scripture, and in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he said, it is the first business of an interpreter to let his author say what he does say instead of attributing to him what we think he ought to say. That emphasizes a principle that that is part of inter, uh, hermeneutics is authorial intent. What did the writer of, of anything intend to say? And that everything must be interpreted and understood in light of the author's intent. Uh, when you're filling out your income tax forms, it doesn't matter what you would like those instructions to say. What matters is what the IRS wants you to do. They're the ones who define the meaning of the text. When you were in school and you had your first girlfriend or boyfriend and they sent you a note, uh, you spent hours trying to figure out just exactly what they meant by every word that they said in that note. It didn't matter what you wanted it to say. What mattered was what they intended to say. I mean, this is almost common sense, but we educate people far beyond the level of common sense today, and when you take interpretation, whether it's in literature, I mean, I would bet almost every one of us in this room went through classes in literature and poetry when you were in high school and college where you would read uh, Coleridge or you would read Wordsworth or you would read uh, just about any any poet and you would think you understood it and you would go to class and the teacher would tell you what it meant and you were sitting there like, how in the world did they ever get that out of what I read? Yeah, right. And I was that way too. And then my very last, I was a double major had an English as, as a double major. My very last English class uh, that I had to take, the last class I had to take before I could graduate was a summer school class, and I had this 75, 80-year-old lady. Everybody told me how hard she was and how strange she was, and her name was Dr. Wyatt, 
and she interpret and it was the English romantics you know early uh, 18th or uh, 19th century English uh, poets and she interpreted it literally she would you would read the poetry she would tell you everything about the poet's life when he wrote it what was going on in his life at the time he wrote it, it was like somebody would teach in the bible you know you had historical grammatical literal hermeneutics and all of a sudden, everything made so much sense. It actually, you could read it and understand it. Well, this is the difference between allegory and subjective in- interpretation and literal and objective interpretation. So Calvin follows Luther in his view of literal, historical, grammatical interpretation and emphasizes that this is, this is what he taught, founded a school in Geneva, and so those who came and trained at the school in Geneva passed on this literal historical interpretation. Uh, Calvin is the French-Swiss reformer from western Switzerland. Central eastern Switzerland is more German. The leader of the German-Swiss Reformation is Ulrich Zwingli. And Ulrich Zwingli, his dates are 1485 to 1531, he was killed in battle between uh, a couple of the cantons in, in, in uh, uh, Switzerland had gone a Protestant, and they were involved in a war with Catholic cantons, and he was killed in battle uh, fairly young. He wrote in his work, The 67 Theses, All who say that the gospel is nothing without the approval of the church heir and cast reproach upon God, challenging the Roman Catholic view that only the Roman Catholic Church and tradition has the right to interpret Scripture, not the individual uh, believer. He said, Certainty comes from the power and clarity of the created activity of God and the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a slight problem with Zwingli the, the, and all the reformers, they did not carry out the principle of literal historical grammatical interpretation consistently through every area of theology. They made huge steps in terms of, of soteriology and understanding the gospel, but they didn't get to work it out into every other area. For example, in baptism, they still held to infant baptism and sprinkling as a legitimate form of baptism. And Zwingli had uh, several followers who were uh, students of his, disciples of his, who uh, broke with him over the consistent uh, interpretation of Scripture when it came to baptism. They became known as Anabaptists because they believed that a person, the, uh, le- baptism was legitimate only after you had come to understand that Jesus was your Savior and so, of course, since everybody had already been baptized as an infant, they needed to be baptized again after they had trusted in Christ. So they became known as Anabaptists. The prefix Anna means again, or a second baptism. And the three founding fathers of the Anabaptist movement were Conrad Grable, Felix Mons, and Georg Blaurock. And, of course, the, the problem that you had at that time to show the implications of hermeneutics, is that if you, uh, it, it, when you were born, you were baptized as an infant because of the unity of church and state, which they still had, uh, baptism as an entry into the church was also a sign of your entry into the citizenship of the country. 
And so to to reject the validity of infant baptism was a political statement that was viewed as treasonous. And so this was viewed as treason, and the penalty was death. And so the form of death was immersion in the lake until they were dead. So this is Vingley, and Zwingli held to literal interpretation, as did as did his followers. They became the leaders and founders of what became known as the Swiss Brethren Church. Then we have this man, William Tyndale. William Tyndale uh, is the first to really complete an English translation of the entire uh, Bible, Old Testament, and New Testament, and he is burned at the stake for his efforts. That's the uh, lithograph on the lower right. He said, Scripture has but one sense, which is the literal sense. It is the New Testament of Tyndale. The quote here, I don't know if you can read that. He, he, this is one of the famous quotes of Tyndale. He said, if God spare my life, ere many years I will cause a boy who drives the plow in England to know more of the Scriptures than you do that by putting the Bible into the hands of every person of common language that he would radically transform England, which he did. Then we have the, um, actually I didn't change that title, it should be the Westminster Assembly of Divines. Let me correct that. The Westminster Assembly, this was called in the 1640s in England uh, to... Uh, write down a basically a doctrinal statement for the Puritan Anglican Church at that time. And they wrote, referring to the Scripture, the statement that the infallible war- rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself, and therefore when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, notice that, The meaning of Scripture is one. Scripture only means one thing. That is a key principle of hermeneutics, that Scripture has one and only one meaning. It may have uh, multiple applications, but it has only one meaning. So uh, Scripture must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Once again, that's the comparison of Scripture with Scripture. This is in the 1647 Westminster Confession of Faith. Then we have the next guy. He's not as well known as his father. His father was Francis Turretin, who taught theology at Geneva. His dates are 1623 to 1687. This is his son, Jean-Alphonse Turretin, who was a theologian in his own right. Francis Turretin, his father, wrote a massive a text on Reformed theology, uh, but his son wrote a work on the sacred scripture and the method of interpretation. And in that, he identified five principles of, of interpretation. First of all, that scripture is to be interpreted like any other book. What he means by that is that God accommodates himself to normal human modes of literature and communication so that we use the same principles to understand the language of the Bible. You don't need some spiritual code. You don't need to put on your magic code glasses. Uh, 
in order to interpret Scripture, uses the same normal, plain language of everyday everyday usage. Second principle is the, the interpreter must give attention to words and expressions in the Scriptures. We have to look at each word, identify its meaning, its range of meaning, and understand its meaning in that particular context. Not only words, but phrases like kingdom. Kingdom is one thing to understand. God is another thing to understand. But then you've got to understand the meaning kingdom of God. And there are many phrases like that in Scripture that we find over and over again. And uh, you have to understand those phrases as well as the meaning of the individual words that comprise the phrase. His third principle was that the objective of the exegete is to determine the purpose of the author in the context, notice, authorial intent. What did the author intend to say? That defines the meaning. Fourth, he says that the interpreter should use the natural light of reason. Now, in this, he's following the uh, thinking of, of his father, who is holding to a Thomistic view of reason, which is not quite autonomous, but almost it's Aristotelian, but that's a totally different issue. Uh, but that we should not see anything in the Scripture that is contradictory. Scripture is not going to contradict itself. And his fifth view is that the opinions of the sacred writers must be understood in terms of their own times. That's what we mean when we talk about historical, grammatical uh, meaning of Scripture, is that it must be understood in terms of the culture and historical background of its own time. So you see, coming out of the Protestant Reformation now, with him we're almost 200 years after the Reformation, and these principles of hermeneutics are becoming more clarified and they're becoming more consistent in their application. In fact, one of the things that happens at the beginning of the Reformation, I use the example of baptism. You have infant baptism and sprinkling that is still considered legitimate. It takes a little while before the Baptists, and, and a lot of the Baptists were, were, were flaky as well. But another area of the application of hermeneutics is in the realm of, of prophecy. And you don't have, and prophecy is the last area of theology where literal interpretation begins to get applied consistently. And it's not until the the 1580s that you have some British Puritan theologians begin to understand that Israel isn't a spiritual code word for the church and that Israel means literal ethnic Israel. And the first couple of guys that uh, take this view are imprisoned, and one of them, Edmund Kett, Edward Kett, is is burned at the stake. Now, he's burned at the stake for, on the basis of several charges, but one of them was that he was Judaizing the text by making it literal. But within 50 years of his death, the, the dominant view among uh, among Puritan theologians in England is that Israel means literal Israel, and the Bible teaches a future restoration of the Jews to their historic homeland uh, before Jesus comes back. And so that it just that's what happens as it works itself out. Within about 20 years of the death of uh, 
of Kett, uh, Francis Kett, that was his name, not Edmund. I was thinking the other major guy at that time is Ed, Edmund Bunny. But Francis Kett, uh, within 20 years of his death, there's a number of other men who are also uh, coming to this same conclusion, one of whom is Henry Finch. Now, you'll find this interesting, Bob. Who is the most significant interpreter? Too bad Robbie's not here. He'd love this little piece of trivia. Who's the most significant interpreter of British law at the time of the American Revolution? Blackstone. Who was the most significant interpreter of English law before Blackstone? It was a guy named Henry Finch. Henry Finch became an enemy of King James because he believed that that the Jews were going to return to their land and that was necessary before Jesus came back to establish his worldwide kingdom on the earth. And James thought that was treasonous because he wasn't going to put up with a competitive authority. So he imprisoned Henry Finch. But that's a great story to learn about Henry Finch. He was considered the expert in England on British law before Blackstone. So you have this shift that's taking place, and it's working itself out. In fact, at the, under allegorical interpretation during the Middle Ages, uh, almost everyone was amillennial. They didn't believe in a literal millennium. That's why if nobody believes in a literal future millennium, nobody's going to think or talk about the rapture before the tribulation because they've allegorized the tribulation. They've allegorized the kingdom. None of these things are being taken in a literal sense. And so nobody's going to talk about the timing of the rapture and its relationship to the tribulation, those things, because none of it's literal. But by the time you get in this post-reformation period, you start seeing a vast number of pastors and theologians in England who are shifting from amillennialism to premillennialism, and in that shift they're becoming literalists in relation to Israel. But it wasn't simply a premillennial issue. There were many who remained amill or even postmill who believed in a future literal return of the Jews to the land. So it begins to really change the whole landscape of their understanding of prophecy, and by the end of the, uh, uh, and even during that time, there's a guy who gave a paper last year pre-trib, also one this year, Bill Watson, who's just a remarkable guy. Uh, what a background he's had. He's kind of a polyglot, and he just loves to sit around and burrow his nose down into a lot of old books and libraries, and he spent his life doing that, and his specialty has been um, Puritan theologians in the 16th and 17th, 1600s. And as a result of going to original sources, he has discovered numerous, I mean a vast number of British uh, pastors and theologians in the 17th and 18th centuries who believed that the church would be taken away by God before the tribulation began. And really up until maybe 15 years ago, 15 to 20 years ago, uh, dispensationalists were always accused of making up the rapture. This was invented by John Nelson Darby in the 1830s. Now, we always believed that, that it didn't originate with Darby, but now we're getting more and more evidence. There's even evidence going back to a 5th or 6th century document by a writer who writes under the pseudonym of Ephraim the Syrian. So he's called Pseudo-Ephraim the Syrian. And he, be, he only believed in a three-and-a-half-year tribulation. 
So he doesn't, it's not mid-trib because his tribulation is only three and a half years, but he believed clearly the church would be removed from the earth before the tribulation. So this is just phenomenal. And it only comes from a consistent application of a literal interpretation. Okay, so we're coming through the post-Reformation period and the early 1700s, early 18th century to mid-18th century when he is when he flourishes mostly in the 1750s to his death in 1781, we have <clears throat> Johann Ernesti. 17, his dates are 1707 to 1781. He believed in, and wrote about the importance of grammar in understanding the scriptures. The importance of grammar in understanding the scriptures. He rejected allegorizing completely. He emphasized a literal approach uh, to the Bible, and this was written in his book, The Institutio Interpretis Novae Testamenti, The Principles of New Testament Interpretation. Now, another movement comes up. This is one of Jeff's favorites. Another movement develops in this period of the late 1600s, and this is the rise of pietism and mysticism as a reaction to uh, Calvinism and Reformed theology. By this time, Puritanism, Calvinism had gotten a little, uh, just what, what they refer to as too creedalistic or formalistic. In other words, everything's just rote memory, and there's something sort of like a, a real heart devotion to the Lord that's missing. So there's a reaction that sets in, and in this reaction, people are seeking for something, some sort of more intimate personal experience with God. Now, mysticism, let's define it. Mysticism is the idea that man has direct knowledge of God and his word. So I don't need to study the words. I don't need to understand the historical uh, background. I don't need to delve into grammar and syntax. God's just going to speak to me and tell me what the word means. So again, this goes back to a subjectivism in Scripture. Mysticism emphasizes this inner spirituality uh, an inner light. Later on, we'll see it develop in some ways into Quakerism and Shakerism and a few others, and eventually into uh, aspects of the modern uh, Pentecostal charismatic movement. But it's this emphasis on the inner light. Some of the key people were uh, Yaakov Bo- Vema, dates are 1635 to 1705, and one of the fathers of the Pietist movement Philippe Yaakov Spainer, 1635 to 1705 as well, and August Franca, 1663 to 1727. This develops this movement called uh, uh, pietism, which emphasizes this personal uh, encounter with God. Now, that's important because pietism influenced a couple of different groups, one group called the Moravians that came out of Germany who were very missionary-minded. And when John Wesley, uh, before he was saved, John Wesley came to uh, America. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, John Wesley came to America with some Moravian missionaries, and they influenced him and may have eventually influenced him in terms of his understanding of the gospel and final salvation. But so pietism influences the Moravians. Moravians uh, introduced, or <clears throat> Moravians introdu- influenced uh, Wesleyanism, 
and Methodism. And the Holiness Pentecostal movement comes out of a strong uh, Methodist Wesleyan background. So that's how we sort of trace the genealogy there. Then you have, and I should have changed the title on that title slide. Let me change that right now. This is the rise of modern modern liberal theology. Modern liberal theology. You have Friedrich Schleiermacher. Friedrich Schleiermacher is considered the father of modern liberalism. His dates are 1768 to 1834, so approximately the time of the acceptance of the U.S. Constitution, it's at that time that Friedrich Schleiermacher is setting forth his ideas in relation to religion. They emphasize pure subjectivity. That's what he's about. It's, again, a reaction to formalism and creedalism, but rather than going in the mystical, pietistic route, he goes in a slightly different route, but it's still subjectivism. That's his key hermeneutic. The text, the meaning of the text isn't objective. It has to do with what it does in terms of the feelings it produces in you. That He rejects the authority of the Bible and emphasizes the role of feeling and self-consciousness in religion. So this is a reaction to much that has uh, has gone before. Uh, following him, you have another key player in the development of m- the rise of modern Protestant theology, and that is, I still have that same title slide there, get rid of that. That is Soren Kierkegaard, who is the father of modern existentialism. Uh, father of modern existentialism. We're still dealing with the the aftermath of these men and the horrible theology that they introduced into the church. Um, Kierkegaard dies in 1855, and he's already brought these ideas in, in, into the church. So he is... Um, let me see here. I just messed up my... How did that happen? Messed up my notes. Okay, let me... See if I can pull this back up. No. Okay. Try this one more time. Well, I'm not going anywhere with that. Um, Kierkegaard, in his view, relegates reason to the lowest level of human operation. In other words, God is not supposed to be reasonable or uh, rational. It's going to appeal differently uh, to us. So this is Kierkegaard. He rejects Christendom with its formal rationalism and cold creedalism, and he teaches that faith, rather than being a uh, being knowledge where we are trusting in what someone has told us, uh, he says that uh, that faith is a subjective experience in one's own despair. He's the one who comes up with the idea of the leap of faith. So when you hear people talking about, well, that's just a leap of faith. Leap of faith is not faith. Leap of faith is contra 
or against all reason or rationality or logic. You're just so despairing of something to find meaning. You're just going to take a leap into the dark on the basis of, and call that faith. So that's what what Kierkegaard uh, introduces into uh, into the system. So you know, let's see if I can get this to work again. Okay, this will come up in just a minute. Yeah, no, no. What he what he's meaning is reason is important. You want to interpret the Bible rationally, you're not going to find your truth or that way. Reason reason is 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 not important. my lost my notes okay that's okay okay then you have the rise of historical criticism now historical criticism is a complete rejection of absolute truth of any kind of external revelation and and in their view what they said was the bible was like any other book now that's different from what we saw earlier for them the bible is supposed to be uh, subject to human rational criticism just like any other book. You, you can't assume that the Bible is authoritative or that it comes from God. It's just a human book. So the human authors are going to make mistakes. They're going to have errors. And uh, those who are studying the Bible have to uh, unearth those errors. And so this dominates major Protestant interpretation up even to the present. This is a problem that we have in a lot of gospel studies today. It's influenced and infiltrated many of our uh, seminaries and other problems to one degree or another. Gave rise in Germany to a uh, uh, major German scholar, F.C. Bauer, who just completely rejects uh, any kind of uh, objective revelation from God, uh, he's influential at the University of Tübingen in Germany, which becomes sort of the seedbed out of which Protestant liberalism uh, comes. And he applies Hegelian principles to understand uh, understand the Bible. What he is saying is that there's this uh, uh, thesis, Judaism, and then uh, antithesis, which is early Christianity, and then it becomes synthesized into what we have developing later on. You have uh, other people who, uh, see, they've rejected the viability of supernaturalism. So they, they don't believe that there's anything supernatural, that the Bible is just a pure human product. Um, and you have people like David Strauss, and for him the Bible is just a collection of myths, so he denies any historical grammatical interpretation. He rejects miracles. This is standard. And then you have people like... Uh, um, Groff and Julius Wellhausen, 
And they view the fact that, the, for example, the Pentateuch wasn't written by Moses. It was written by a lot of different people. And then you have this redactor, that's another word for an editor, who comes along after the Babylonian captivity and just sort of cobbles this stuff together to give Israel a foundation myth for, for to explain how they came into existence. And nothing about it is historical or, or accurate. So this is historical criticism. doesn't take the Bible literally or to be accurate, and so it is in uh, complete rejection of any kind of historical, literal, grammatical uh, interpretation. Then you have, um, at the same time, though, you have a huge number of conservatives in the 19th century. Hingstenberg and Franz Delich are both saved out of Orthodox Jewish backgrounds, and as a result, um, uh, they are uh, have great contribution to Old Testament studies and Old Testament understanding. People like H.A.W. Meyer, J.P. Lang, Frederick Godet, who is an Arminian, Henry Alford, Ellicott, uh, J.B. Lightfoot, Westcott, and Hort, they have a whole significant revolutionary theory of textual criticism. Charles Hodge, who taught theology at Princeton, uh, John Albert Broadus, who was a great Southern Baptist theologian, uh, Theodore Zahn. These are just some of many. We're familiar with names like uh, Schofield, names like Chafer. Uh, these names, just just hundreds and hundreds of solid conservative evangelical Protestants who continue to teach and write on the basis of a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation. Then we get into the 20th century, and just to cover some of the trends, liberalism continues. The Bible is, and, and liberalism is viewed as a purely human book, and the liberals, uh, in terms of religious liberalism, rejects the supernatural elements completely. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have those who are biblically orthodox. You have the rise of the fundamentalists who are, uh, who reject completely what the liberals are teaching, and that's how fundamentalism began. You had your uh, your books on the, funda- the, the, the fundamentals of Christianity that was published in the early 20th century, and it emphasizes the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, emphasizes things like the uh, virgin birth, substitutionary atonement of Christ, literal second coming of Christ to the earth, the uh, literal reality of, of miracles, things like that. Biblical orthodoxy is built on a literal grammatical historical interpretation. Now, one of the dominant views in liberalism was called postmodernism. Uh, not postmodernism, postmillennialism. And in postmillennialism, they believed that the world was getting better and better through the 19th century with the advance in technology and the Industrial Revolution and many other things, and eventually we would bring in a perfect society and a, a, a perfect world. That was shattered on the fields of Flanders in World War One, with the trench warfare and the modern uh, uh, massive, massive killing uh, machines, machine guns, tanks, uh, chemical weapons, things of this nature, just devastated the whole post-millennial utopic scheme. And so 
You had a theologian, a German theologian by the name of Karl Barth, who completely rejects the whole uh, assumption of liberalism that the Bible's just a human book and has a lot of errors in it and um, and the whole the whole utopic scheme. But he doesn't swing back to biblical orthodoxy. His view becomes known as neo-orthodoxy. He denies the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, but the Bible becomes the Word of God as it has a subjective impact in the heart of the hearer. That's when it becomes the Word of God. It's not to be interpreted in a literal, historical, grammatical manner. And then as you get into the 20th century, there are a lot of different uh, trends, just in negative trends, not literal, historical, but within liberalism and neo-orthodoxy. It's like there's this fragmentation and there's a vision of lots of different uh, subordinate schools that get into uh, postmodernism and other things of that nature. And um, But still, it's the conservative, fundamentalist, evangelical that continues to hold to a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation. Okay, anybody have any questions? Jeff. A.W. Tozer. Tozer is uh, Tozer's conservative evangelical. He would hold to a literal grammatical interpretation. He's a little bit mystical in, in some of his stuff. Uh, that, that whole group that comes, uh, you know, Moody was that way. A lot of those uh, sort of the Keswick type, victorious life type, that are have their they're mostly uh, mostly hold to a, to a literal historical grammatical interpretation. Well, even the Calvinists do, the amillennialists, like the, those at Westminster, they will say they hold to a literal grammatical historical interpretation, but they don't consistently apply it in every area. We would say that as dispensationalists that they don't apply it in eschatology. They're they're literal historical until they get to prophecy, and then it becomes uh, it becomes allegorical. And even um, uh, Oswald Alice, who was the head of the Old Testament Department at Westminster Seminary when it was founded in the 30s and 40s, wrote in his book on, uh, uh, on, on the Old Testament interpretation that if we were to, uh, if, if we were to apply literal interpretation to prophecy, we would, we would have to believe in a literal future millennium. I mean, they admit that. But they don't believe that's how you are to interpret prophecy. So, anything else? Okay, last week and this week, I went through the history because the history is important to understand these trends, understand what's gone before, uh, where it's led, and that there, there are significant implications to how we understand and interpret the Scripture. We'll come back next week. I want you to continue working through those exercises in the workbook uh, dealing with Habakkuk, reading Habakkuk, and we'll come back in two weeks and we'll go back into some of the principles. Uh, I've emphasized some as I've gone through the notes, uh, some of these principles of hermeneutics. Remember, the definition of hermeneutics has to do with the understanding the principles of proper interpretation. And so we're, we've hit on some of those. I'll summarize those, and then we'll be applying those as we get into the, um, as we get into the, the workbook on Habakkuk. Okay? Any other questions? See, we're finishing on time tonight. First time. 
All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we've had. Uh, help us to understand uh, the significance in interpretation, how it shapes so m- very much that, that it shapes our application. If we don't interpret right, then we're not applying correctly. Help us to understand the implications of our system of of interpretation, literal, grammatical, historical, and to avoid slipping off into unacceptable areas of interpretation, that we may honestly and accurately handle your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.